I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Americans can be extraordinarily generous, giving billions each year to organizations that help others, from a neighborhood youth soccer team to natural disaster relief and everything in between. But how do we know if our dollars are changing lives in the most impactful way possible? How do we know that philanthropy is a force for social good and not just window dressing to cover for deep social inequity? My guest today has devoted his professional life to considering just those deep questions. Phil Buchanan is the founding president of the Center for Effective Philanthropy and the author of Giving Done Right, Effective Philanthropy and Making Every Dollar Count. In full disclosure, I should say that I am the chair of the Center for Effective Philanthropy, a role that I am happy to play because of the work they do to improve impact. All right, Phil Buchanan, welcome to We Can Be. Thanks for having me here, yeah, It's really a pleasure. I love your book, Giving Done Right. I think it asks really important questions about the role of philanthropy in our society, how to do it right, how to do it well, what some of the criticisms are, what the limitations are. And I want to talk about all of that, but I, I want to start with how it began for you. And you wrote a blog about your dad and some perspectives that he gave you on giving and philanthropy and service. Just tell us a little bit about how this journey began for you. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think my earliest memories of giving are really giving time with my dad, who was an activist. You know, one of my earliest memories is wearing a sandwich board <laughs> that was too big for me That and marching against the B-1 bomber with him, then watching him do things like lying on train tracks where they were taking nuclear warheads up to Washington State. We lived in Portland, Oregon, really just standing up for what he believed in all the time. And, you know, he went away one summer, and I think it was about 10 or 11, and, and he told me that he wanted to spend the summer working with uh, migrant farm workers because he wanted to understand their experience better. And and I remember feeling a little bit like, wait, don't you want to hang out with me yeah. in the summer? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, over time, as I came to really have a lot of admiration for the way that he sought to build relationships with people whose lives and experiences were vastly different than his, and how much his awareness of his own privilege. I mean, he was a squarely middle-class guy, but I mean, he had a lot of privilege. And he really sought to connect in whatever way that he could with people. And he was passionate about, about equity, really. I think that had a profound effect on me. I also saw, I guess, the degree to which by being so aggressively adversarial, which is really the way he was, he sometimes limited his own influence, mm. I think. And so I, I, as I thought about my own career, you know, I've tried to balance the desire to really make a difference with the realities that that sometimes involves operating within systems that are not perfect. And I think certainly philanthropy is one such system. You know, I'm, I'm curious about how you got from that experience, and it's a good observation about what you learned from your dad, both positive and negative, but I'm curious how you get from there to Center for Effective Philanthropy and the mission that it has to make philanthropy more effective in general. Like a lot of people, maybe most people, I really didn't have a clear sense of my own career path. I, I wanted to be 
a journalist, I think, at one point. I ended up working in higher education administration for a little while. Uh, went and got an MBA because I felt like that didn't close off many options. Worked in strategy consulting in, in the corporate world and knew that that was not for me and wanted to do something that felt more meaningful. There was a founding board of CEP that was looking for a first executive director and the challenge was how to influence these large, often fairly unaccountable institutions with tremendous assets that have the opportunity to do a lot of good, to do more good. I thought that was an interesting set of challenges and even though at the time that I took the job I believe the grand total of grant funding raised was $345,000 which doesn't last very long uh, when you hire a couple of staff it just felt like there was an opportunity there. That was a, uh, a brave move actually to take that leap. Yeah, in retrospect, I, it wasn't really very thought through. I was about $100,000 in graduate school debt at the time, but it worked out. Yeah, well, sometimes yeah. the most brilliant moves are the ones we make based on our gut and our instincts, so, right. and it served you well. You know, I look at the national statistics for giving in the United States, $427 billion being given every year. That's a lot of money. Why did you think it was important to tell people how they can do it better than they are? I've come to believe that we don't appreciate nearly enough the role of the nonprofit sector in this country and the role of both national and community-based and often small organizations. We take for granted so much good that is done, whether it is the fact that we don't have to worry about our kids dying of yellow fever or a more recent phenomenon. We don't have to worry about whether our family members can marry who they love. These are phenomenons that connect directly to philanthropy and nonprofits and the role that they played at the community level. And the typical nonprofit has a budget of well under a million dollars. And these are organizations with a handful of staff often helping folks who are not being served by government or business. And in this moment, often helping folks who are not just being neglected by the current federal government, but being targeted, that they are in the breach between the most marginalized mm. folks and mm -hmm. a government that doesn't care about them and, and in some cases actively is working to hurt them. So I think sometimes we undervalue the role of nonprofits in pushing against the other sectors. What do you think that society gets wrong about the nonprofit sector? Pretty much everything. I mean, in the sense that, like, you hear so often this notion that nonprofits should operate like business. And I never know what that means. Is that like Google or the corner dry cleaner or Volkswagen when they were cheating on emissions tests? But the, or what, Wall Street pre-2007. Exactly. Yeah. But I think what people mean is effectively, mm -hmm. as if nonprofits aren't effective. So that leads to all kinds of messed up behaviors in which we don't adequately fund nonprofits. We don't support the idea that nonprofit staff should be paid a decent wage. We give small and restricted grants because we don't trust organizations to allocate money wisely. We paternalize and condescend to nonprofits rather than recognizing that if you are someone like the folks that I write about in the book, uh, Greg Cruteau in Lowell, Massachusetts, who runs an organization that works with the most gang-involved young people to get them out of gang life, which involves talking to them at funerals, at hospital bedsides, 
in jail when no one else is visiting them, and then getting them employed in a mattress recycling facility, and then a wood shop that makes cutting boards and sells them to Whole Foods and provides them support in getting their GED, $6 million budget. His job, Greg's job, is every bit as hard as running an equivalent size business, and then all kinds of much, much harder. He is both a spiritual advisor and a mediator and a policy advocate. I think when we don't support leaders like him, the work suffers. And so a big part of what I try to do in Giving Done Right is to help donors recognize and have the humility to learn about the real story of organizations like the ones I described. I think it's such a great example. It also invites a little scrutiny. When we think about this from the perspective of some of those who criticize philanthropy and criticize giving and criticize the nonprofit sector, they look at a story like that and they say, okay, fine. The examples cited in your book are wonderful examples of people attending to a a broken world, but not necessarily trying to fix the systems that lead to that brokenness in the first place. Is that a fair criticism of the nonprofit sector? Oh, sometimes I think it is. And I think we have to seek to eradicate problems upstream wherever we can. And the reality is philanthropy has helped to do that in instances like Polio, for example, it is important to work both to address root causes where you can and to also recognize that no matter how much work you do there, there will be immediate suffering and challenges that you need to also work to address. I don't think either form of philanthropy is morally superior to the other. They're both really important. And by the way, Greg would agree. I mean, part of what they're doing is working on things like expungement of criminal records for juveniles and, you know, advocacy at the policy level, as well as, you know, connecting up with others working on these issues across the country. I get a little bit skeptical about the sort of jargon-laden talk of disruption and magic bullets Mm. or blowing up the system that doesn't really consider, well, then what? I just read yet another article today in Forbes about how, you know, philanthropy is broken and hasn't accomplished anything. And this is not true, and it's not helpful to improvement. When someone like Anand Girdadas, who wrote Winners Take All, the elite charade of changing the world goes on MSNBC and says, nonprofits are a big part of a rigged system. How a rigged system gets rigged, I think that's not helpful. Rich people are playing a double game. On one hand, there's no question they're giving away more money than has ever been given away in history. But I argue in this book that we also have one of the more predatory elites in history, despite that philanthropy, despite that desire to change the world. There's this idea that has taken hold in our time, which is the idea of the win-win. A win-win is the idea that essentially the winners can profit while helping other people. Uh, They can do well by doing good. What this often ends up meaning in practice is that social change that offers a kickback to the winners is favored, and forms of social change that don't are not. They offer a light facsimile of change. They offer a win-win change. They offer change that doesn't change anything fundamental. This is the kind of change the winners can get on board with, change that changes nothing fundamental, change that keeps what they need, change that doesn't change their world. By peddling a lot of pseudo-change, instead of actually fixing 
the American opportunity structure instead of actually repairing the American dream over the last 30 or 40 years. They allowed some of the biggest problems in this country to fester for decades and not be solved. We've seen the emergence of a whole philanthropy as broken industry, I think, over the past few years. I was really glad in your answer that you spoke to the fact that many nonprofits are working on system-level solutions. And I'm wondering why you think it is that people coming into philanthropy today so often talk about the brokenness of the system and how they're going to quote-unquote reinvent it. Why do we keep defining this work by the dismissals of the people who are newest in it? That's an excellent question, and I wish I had the answer. And I really don't think it happens in other domains as much, that if you're Sean Parker, you accomplished a lot as a hacker, you then take that analogy and say, what we all need to do is hacker philanthropy. Everything else was stupid that came before, ineffective, broken, slow, tired, and you're given a you know massive op-ed in the Wall Street Journal to make that case, and yet you haven't even done any philanthropy yet. It doesn't make any sense. I tell the story a bit of Mario Marino in the book, who is one of the founders of the venture philanthropy analogy, who now says, I was arrogant. Within one year of working with venture philanthropy partners, I stopped using the reference, a nonprofit should run like a business. Nonprofit field is very relationship-based, very subjective in its nature. It takes a lot longer to get something done. The absence of systems is replaced by relationships in this field. And I see so many efforts today, well-intended, well-funded, great leadership, fail because they forgot to look at the human capital infrastructure around them, the ecosystem in which they have to navigate. I would say talk little and listen a lot. The new wave of critique is philanthropy and nonprofits are doing work that's allowing for an exercise of power by the wealthy that is unaccountable and undemocratic, and that's problematic, and actually government has all the answers. This is coming from the political left at an odd time to say that government has all the answers, actually. And I think the point that I'm trying to make is like each of these sectors, business, government, nonprofits supported by philanthropy, play distinct roles. They're different, and we need to recognize the importance of each. What I hear is a frustration with institutions, and philanthropy is caught up in that. I hear a criticism that after decades of tearing away public support for government, society has now positioned philanthropy as the alternative to government, and it's a fundamentally undemocratic institution. And I would like you to talk a little bit about that criticism, but the criticism that government needs to do more is probably one that most of my colleagues in philanthropy would agree with. We think that's actually the outcome that we're seeking for our philanthropic work is to get the public sector to step up to its responsibilities. And I agree. That's what I want to see happen as well. What I worry that we lose sight of, though, in this discussion is the important role of independent organizations that can actually challenge government, challenge business. I think we need to remember that even in societies in which the government takes a larger responsibility for providing basic social safety net, greater equality of opportunity, even in those societies, there are certain things that the government is not that good at doing. And it is good to have independent organizations. And I think that gets lost in some of the conversation. I think also sometimes what gets lost is the role that organizations play and philanthropy plays in the here and now 
where we have elected folks who don't care to take care of ensuring that there is less inequality. And I'm just saying that we should be able to simultaneously try to change our political system, try to change the role of government, and recognize the role that philanthropy can play and try to, and this is what I'm trying to do, is encourage people of significant wealth who want to do something with that wealth to do their giving in a way that is not top-down, that is not about just the pursuit of their own priorities, but that actually elevates the voices and opportunities of the most vulnerable and deals with the issues that are not being well taken care of. You've said before that America's nonprofit leaders are our unsung heroes. Is that part of what makes them unsung? Yeah. Often their success is not understood or appreciated. I think also just the challenges that we've been discussing lead to an underappreciation. There's a sense that, again, it must be, you know, easy work and, right. you know, oh, you, you probably don't work long hours and, you know, how wonderful that must be. And so, yeah, I think that there is an underappreciation of what is often accomplished. I mean, the other thing is like, Sometimes what is accomplished is the prevention of something terrible, right? I mean, mm. so it is hard to sort of tout that, right. you know. It's much trickier to tell that story than it is to show investors a chart of your, you know, revenue growth or profitability. Yeah. I don't know any leaders, actually, who work as hard as the frontline workers in nonprofit organizations in terms of hours or the pay that they get in right. exchange for that. Right. One of the criticisms that I think folks that you're describing um, bring to philanthropy is the thorny problem of capitalism, that the system itself is rigged in a way that is constantly disadvantaging workers and vulnerable populations, that it um, continues to worsen inequality, that it continues, not philanthropy, capitalism, right. and that the system we're operating in allows philanthropy, therefore, to be used as kind of a fig leaf to cover up those sins. Here's Anand Girdadas on MSNBC. There's a lot of giving that is very tactical and strategic, but this is a big part of why people give. It is the modern papal indulgence. You sin over here, you cost millions their homes and your jobs, you, you take all as the winner, which is why I call it winners take all. And then over here you do a gala, you do a charity, you do a Robin Hood, you do, you do some little, little shelter or some little yeah. program, and you, feel, and you tell people you've made the world a better place, and we in the media and we in the society, we fall for it. I have a lot of misgivings about capitalism as we are currently practicing it in this country. And, and I, so I think my own view is that, you know, we need to talk about two things that we don't like to talk about, which is regulation mm -hmm. and redistribution. And I think we have not done enough of either. We need to be able to do multiple things at once, like work for the kind of change that we want to see in our big systems and also work today and tomorrow and the next day with the givers and nonprofits who are doing important work right now, that we have to be able to talk about both and keep both front and center and get people motivated to get out there in their communities mm -hmm. trying to do good, connecting with people. I spent time at this nonprofit that I write about in the book called Epiphany Community Health Outreach Services, and they are uh, small Houston, Texas organization, $600,000 budget. People come there when they are desperate. And when Hurricane Harvey hit, that's where everybody went because they knew that's where help was. And you meet the volunteers there. And I met a volunteer, a retired 
lawyer, this was the most meaningful part of his life. And you see the relationships develop between him and the clients and the staff and the other volunteers. This kind of community connection across various kinds of difference, I think, is really important both for the work but also for our democracy. Natural disasters are a focus of philanthropy that many observers write about as America at its best, American society at its best. It's just a beautiful display of what Fred Rogers used to call the helpers, you know, right. gathering around to help. And yet, you also observe in your writing that it's an amazing opportunity to go wrong right. from a philanthropy standpoint, in part because of the very emotion that drives us to give in the first place. Can you talk a little bit about that. There's a tendency to, first of all, which is very hard to counteract, respond to, you know, whatever is in the media the most, right? And so we can look at the response to, you know, a natural disaster in East Africa and the sort of woeful lack of a philanthropic outpouring relative to the fire at, at Notre Dame. So you have to, I think, challenge yourself as a donor to, to sort of be aware and and not just respond to whatever is is getting the most attention. I think that the tendency to help also leads people to provide things that are not needed. You know, I talk about in Houston after Harvey, somebody told me the story of, you know, going through bins that included like a pair of stiletto heels that had been donated, you know, post. Because that's always extremely useful. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, not paying attention to the long-term need for rebuilding, you know. So I think one of the reasons why donors fall into the traps you've just described is it feels good. There's an immediate emotional gratification. You feel like you've done something, and and that can be a beautiful thing, and I think we want to support that. You have talked about, though, how giving done right can evoke joy. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because there's always this head or the heart kind of like false dichotomy, right? Mm -hmm. And I have come to believe that it is usually the heart that compels people to use their head, right? You know, and, right. and so I think for most of the folks that I've spoken to who are interested in mm -hmm. what the Center for Effective Philanthropy does, the joy for them comes in, in the realization that they have actually made, made a difference. The other part of it is that really effective giving is dependent on strong relationships relationships between funders and recipients across funders. And out of those relationships, there is much joy as people get to understand each other and get the satisfaction that comes from working together over the long haul. You know, I think one of the perils that I've seen in one trend in a certain type of philanthropy largely coming out of Silicon Valley is that it transforms it into a technocratic exercise. Mm -hmm. And there's an emphasis on effectiveness, and it leads to kind of absurd extremes where you have very wealthy philanthropists saying that the best use for their money would be to invest in space travel so that they can help humanity get off planet Earth when we destroy it. Right. Or that the greatest use of philanthropy would be to avert the coming AI apocalypse, uh, because that will save the largest <laughs> right. number of theoretical human lives. Right. And that that is a better use of philanthropy in their mind than helping hungry people today. Right. How would you persuade them to get off the math alone and think about the hungry people today as a 
problem that needs their help and maybe merits the greater attention. For me, it brings up this conversation about effective altruism. Peter Singer, the philosopher at Princeton, he argues not all goals are equally worthy, but he takes it pretty far to the notion that you should not if you're an American, for example, give locally because, you know, a couple of hundred dollars can dramatically alter for the better the life trajectory or maybe even save the life of someone in a much less developed country. What I'm trying to argue for is like wrestling with all of these different arguments and contradictions and holding them together in your head and then coming to some conclusion that that balances them out. I think it is really important to think about whether you might want to direct some of your philanthropy to things like prevention of malaria. And I think that we are wired to want to be connected to our communities, our local communities, and to give there too. And I think that that's also to be encouraged. You know, So I don't have any magic answer or formula. People have to wrestle with this and work it out for themselves. You recently did a terrific blog about the dangers of taking tainted money and taking contributions from donors who are at best dubious in terms of their reputations, the risks of nonprofits taking money from individuals whose behavior runs counter to their values. And yet for nonprofits, many nonprofits can hardly pay their employees a living wage. A shocking percentage of nonprofit leaders in this country don't have retirement plans. A shocking number don't even have what many of us would consider decent medical plans. These are real challenges for America's nonprofit sector. How do you suggest that we, foundations that give away money, help organizations wrestle with staying true to their values without appearing to lecture them about behavior that is keeping them alive. Foundations and other major donors need to take more responsibility for what you just described in terms of the often shockingly low pay and poor benefits of folks, particularly in smaller and community-based nonprofits. And I have spoken to leaders whose organizations are seen as crucial by big foundations that are funding them but are never asked about this. And the leader of the organization doesn't want to bring it up because uh, they don't want the funder to know that they can't keep anyone for longer than two or three years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this conversation just isn't happening. I think it's also maybe uncomfortable because particularly at the bigger foundations, the pay and benefits tends to be quite good. And the disconnect between that and what some of the key grantees are able to do. So the more that funders can actually just say, for the core grantees whose goals overlap with ours, we will support them in a way that allows them and really strongly encourages them to deal with that. That will strengthen them to be better and more effective, but also to be more able to potentially say no to the kind of gifts that you described. I mean, I don't think there are easy answers here. There are for, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, and I think it's clear that you don't take money from the white nationalist, you know. Right. But I mean, we have to acknowledge that there's a whole bunch of much trickier gray areas. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, those funders where the answers to those questions are not difficult can shore up those organizations that are vital to them so that they can say no to what they need to say no to. Mm. What are the three things you wish people would take away from your book? This, by the way, 
is not meant for anybody listening to be an excuse not to buy the book because the book, <laughs> the book is fabulous and it really um, offers amazing examples of how America's social sector is doing its work and doing it well and ways it can get better. But what are three things that you hope we'll all walk away with? Thanks, Grant. I think that philanthropy is uniquely hard and therefore that you need to approach it with a certain kind of deep humility. That second one would be that it is possible to do it well. And when you do it well, you can really see amazing, amazing results. And the third one would be that each of our sectors in our country isn't what it needs to be. Business isn't, government isn't, the nonprofit sector isn't, but they all need each other. They all do something different and distinct. Boundary blurring among the sectors is not actually helpful. We need to be clear on the different roles of these sectors. And and that the one that we have undervalued the most is, is the nonprofit sector. You said at the beginning when you were reflecting on your dad that one of the things that you observed is that he was a bit more of a fighter. But, you know, you're kind of a fighter. You, you, it's clear that he passed along his social conscience to you. How are you passing it along to your daughters? I'm trying to do my best. Um, they, my dad's name was Rupert. And everybody called him Roop, and our daughters are often invoking him even though they've never met him. Like, they'll see something that they think is outrageous, and, you know, they'll say it's their inner Roop, you know, who's <laughs> who's really outraged about it. I mean, I think they're 14 and 18 now, but, you know, when they were younger, trying to make sure that they get out of the particular suburban bubble that they were in. One thing that I, I can't really say that it was my idea, it was her idea, but one thing that, that has been just profound for my 14-year-old is for the last year or so, uh, she's been volunteering at a, a nonprofit assisted living facility, spending time with the people there. And, you know, it's actually been a really interesting reminder to me of just the incredible effect that giving in that way can mm -hmm. have on someone mm -hmm. and on a, on a young person, uh, the way it's opened her eyes to the different experiences of these folks and the challenges some of them are experiencing, some of whom are, you know, in very, very poor right. health. And then lots of dinner time conversation. I'm going to let that be the last word, except for this one, uh, <laughs> which is the name of this program is We Can Be. It's an incomplete sentence. Uh, how would you end that sentence? We can be what? We can be so much more generous and effective in our generosity in a way that creates much more equity. Fantastic. Phil Buchanan, thanks so much for being with me. Thanks for having me, Grant. I love what Phil shared about his father. His dad helped him form his sense of what it means to give effectively, to take the time to get to know those to whom we're giving. Because if we don't, we risk alienating them, making the chasms that divide us even wider. We also risk losing the opportunity to learn from them, which, for givers, should be philanthropy's first and real benefit. Americans have good hearts. The $427 million given away last year is just one measure of that. And with careful thought for where those dollars are going, we can nudge society toward a more just future. But only if we start from a place of appreciation for the difficult and powerful work this nation's nonprofits do and the invaluable service they provide our society. Phil reminds us to value our philanthropy even as we demand more from it.